music playing still. Hey, welcome in everyone. I don't know if anyone else can hear the music. Let me. Well, welcome in everyone. Can you hear the music tomorrow? I can't. Oh, there it stopped. I apologize, guys. I had music still playing in my ear. That was a beautiful intro. Oh, I'm, I'm getting feedback from something here. I apologize, guys. We'll get this resolved. Mara, I am getting feedback from um, your. One second here, guys. I apologize for the, the brief delay and we will hop in. No worries. I, I have a backup plan. So um, do you want me to switch out my mic? Yeah, switch out the mic and go to the headphone. Okay. Outstanding. Okay, awesome. I think we are good to go now. Sorry, everyone. Um, welcome in. My name is uh, Mark Real, and it is Thursday, February 10th, 2022, and you are watching State of the Family Courts. Tonight, we have a, a very special guest. Uh, we have a fellow California attorney. I'm actually coming to you live from I'm actually coming to you live from Indiana. I'm home for a wedding this weekend, but uh, about 50 miles west of where I would normally be, we have uh, California family law attorney, Tamara Benefield Falk. Tamara, Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can hear you great. Um, so thank you so much, Tamara, for joining us. Um, I know we, we, we met probably about, about six weeks ago. Um, through a program we are both involved in and have had been able to have a handful of really good discussions. So I am excited to have you on the show. Um, for all our viewers, we got, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit of domestic violence, um, some trial prep, um, some more technical stuff if you kind of are in the weeds with your case. So thank you so um, much, Mark, for having me. I really appreciate you for this. Yeah, no problem at all. I'm, I'm excited to have you. So we'll start out um, as something new our viewers over the last month we have done is we have our, our rapid fire round, a little get to know you. So I'll, I'll start out. We're going to do five questions about general life, and then we'll, we'll get into where they can get a hold of you. So first question is, what is your favorite movie? My favorite movie is The Matrix. And I feel <laughs> just, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why okay. the matrix? So I just love, I love, I love all the fight scenes. I love all the nuances and how they choreographic and make it very artistic. And I just love the idea of like getting unplugged and, and getting free, you know, from, from the matrix. So. Okay. Okay. So, uh, next one is, uh, you got one week, you don't have any client work to deal with. Where's your vacation spot? Turks and Caicos. I know the exact slither of sand and exactly what those waves look like. And on a great day, you can even see, you know, the fish swimming by gently by your feet because the water is absolutely crystal clear and translucent. Okay. See, yeah. that's more along the lines. Last week, my guest, he's from Kansas and he threw out a spot in Canada. And I was like, I, I don't know if I can get behind that. <laughs> 
I need I need a beach somewhere. Absolutely. Um, next one is um, so where where are we, where are you from originally? So I, I'm a native to California, born and raised, went to school all the way through college and law school. And uh, my practice is located in Beverly Hills. And yes, yeah, so born and raised, native California girl. Okay, okay. I feel like the areas I've lived in, um, I lived in Glendale for a while. Um, oh, now nice. where I'm at in Corona, um, okay. they are not not a whole lot of native Californians. Um, so uh, yeah, you know what, Mark? It's so funny you mentioned Glendale because that's my old stomping ground. The neighborhood I grew up in is Los Feliz, which is right close by, and yep. I always used to hang out in Glen Feliz. So. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. So you mentioned your practice. So let's go ahead and, and dive into that. So you have your own practice in, um, West LA. Um, what is the website? Where can they find you? So I'm in Beverly Hills and I can be found conveniently at www.beverlyhillsfamilylawattorney.com. Awesome. And then are you exclusively in LA or do you represent um, outside of LA County? So I do the seven counties, uh, greater counties in, in Southern California. So absolutely LA County. I go as far as um, up north for, uh, to Santa Barbara, um, Inland Empire. I take cases all over and now with virtual appearances and um, that are that we're capable of. It's even broadened my horizons a little more. So if you're in California, we can help. <laughs> you got two here tonight for, for yeah, the Californians. We're going to talk way. about some non-California. We're going to talk about non-California topics <laughs> that are going to apply to everyone, but you do right. have two California attorneys on tonight. Yeah. So yeah. last one there is you have it in, in your uh, name tag there, um, your social handle. Where what What sites can they find you on social media? Absolutely. So I'm on Instagram. My business page can be found at at Tamara Benefield, just like you see it on the screen, at Tamara Benefield ESQ um, through Instagram. Um, Facebook is Benefield and Falk LLP. And uh, right now, if you Google my name, you'll see a bunch of different um, other ways you can you can see me. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that. Viewers, go give her a follow. Um, I know she's going to be pumping out a lot of really good content um, in the very, very near future. So we'll go ahead and we will we'll jump right into some uh, topics tonight. And despite the fact that I'm on here every single week, one of the things we, I guess you could say, neglect is um, kind of what the experience and what the beginnings of an experience in California family courts are. So he, here's my question to you. So uh, individual. Um, most of our viewers are, are, are going to be fathers here. So I'll say father walks into your office and um, he, he's unmarried, has has a young child. Um, what, it, what are the first things you tell him and what are his experiences like um, in the beginning stages of going through California family courts? Yeah, thank, thank you. That's a great question, Mark. So I think that through the perspective of a father with a young child, the first thing you experience is just the magnitude of your own situation and how difficult it is to identify how to navigate the court process. And I think for most people, they kind of stumble around and they're looking at um, 
an upcoming hearing date um, and you've gotten that far, maybe you've managed to work with a paralegal and download some forms on your own. But it gets to a point for most of the, the fathers coming into my office where they realize what's at stake. And what's at stake is at least the temporary orders going forward to either establish legal and physical custody, to establish visitation, to establish the right to be a parent. And I think that there's a fear factor. I feel like my clients come in like just so worried and overburdened and fearing that their relationship with their child is at stake. And I get that. I completely get that as a mom. I, I get that as a former single parent. Um, just the horror of trying to find your way uh, in terms of identifying what do you do. So I think if the fathers actually come into my office, that's a great starting point. I don't think you navigate these courts without an attorney. We can talk a little bit later about um, with you, Mark, about ways to do that successfully. But I think that what I what I share with them is my own experience. So I was once that person who needed representation and realized that the procedural um, complexity was just above my ability at the time. You know, the the vastness of the family court. I mean, in California, you're dealing with literally if not the largest, one of the top three largest courts in the entire United States of America on the basis of, you know, state funding and how many people are just being serviced and processed through the courts. And you just realize, you know what, I don't want to be lost in this process. I need somebody who cares. I need somebody who knows the name of my child when I call, who knows the name of my child in court. And I want someone who knows what they're doing and cares about my life and the future of my relationship with my child. So that's what I talk about with them. Yeah, you you, you made a point that, that made me chuckle because uh, I, I had an individual who I just spoke with uh, today and uh, I actually met him in court and he was represented at the time in court. And his complaint was his attorney showed up and didn't know his name or called him by the wrong name. Uh, so... It can be it can be a very big and a very important decision. I think you made a really really good point in talking about a lot of dads come in scared, and and I think a lot of our viewers it's they've pro that they're they're a good chance they've they've been involved in the system they have been, may have been chewed up and spit back out. Um, but if you're a dad here watching and you're concerned, and the big one I see is moms make threats of I'm going to. Um, you're not going to see the child. You're going to have to pay me all your money. You're going to have to do all these things. And the first thing I tell clients is that's not the case. Um, I mean, I, I'm not going to, I haven't been, I've been practicing for a relative short period of time compared to a lot of my peers, but you talk to someone who's been around and I don't know if you're familiar with David Passar. I've had him on before. Um, he's out in your neck of the woods and he, now compared to 20 years ago, as crazy as it sounds, is very dad friendly. Uh, courts are looking for a way. I mean, they're looking for a way to foster a relationship with both parents. Um, that. You know, Mark, uh, so, um, I mean, what's what's been your experience around that? Um, you have a little bit more experience in in family court than I do. Have you seen a shift and change in that front? Absolutely. So let me pick up on a couple of your points, uh, Mark, because they're great. You know. 
having a great relationship with your an attorney is so important. Um, and so if someone's dropping the ball in the name of your child in court, that that's a huge red flag. You know, one of the things I uh, like is when clients bring in photos, it's not only a source of evidence for the case that they've met the child and spent time and held the child out as their own, but also hum humanizes what could otherwise be a file, right? Um, I try not to take on too many cases where, you know, I can't learn about who my client actually is as a person and his connection to the child. And it just really helps when you have that picture, uh, you know, with the father and child together, because, you know, I think that's what it's all about. I, and I, and I, let me zoom out a bit to answer your question, Mark. Absolutely. I think courts, um, are attuned to just how difficult it is, especially for pro pers to represent themselves. So if they come in with an attorney, it lets the court know, look, I know this is really serious. I don't want to drop any balls. I want someone who speaks your language, judge. And I think that um, the courts are extremely sensitized to how important it is to establish the father-child relationship early on. Because one of the dynamics you get to experience, and I'm a 20 plus year practitioner, is the loss of the parent-child relationship. And that can happen, not because he doesn't care, not because he isn't fully committed and invested in the child's life, but because he has been literally isolated, alienated, cut off, and somehow through not having representation, um, fell through the cracks of the system. And that can happen. And so I think courts are very sensitive to even, even people who are troubled and may have had some initial issues in establishing the relationship. When they come back and they say, hey, you know what, I'm no longer, um, uh, I'm no longer working out of state. Or, you know, I struggled with addiction, perhaps, you know, but here are the things I'm doing to get help. And if you just give me an entryway, I'll establish trust with the child. I'll re rebuild my co-parenting relationship with the other parent. And I'll show the court that the whole, you know, the whole public policy of the law, which is to assure that a child has frequent and continuing contacts with both of their parents, can be realized through me. Because it is the most tragic outcome for whatever reason when you have a child without either parent, unless there are some really compelling reasons, and that parent is a threat to the child's mental, emotional, um, physical safety. But absent some extraordinary circumstances, you know, our entire court system is really centered around the policy of ensuring frequent and continuing contacts. And that bond is solidified through so many laws. But the, the bottom line is, I think it breaks the hearts of practitioners and breaks the heart of judges as well when fathers check out right? And, and, and you see that dynamic, you know, um, where it's like, there's just been so many barriers to accessing their child. So many times mom didn't show up. So many court hearings asking, begging for visitation. And they fall through the cracks and they check out. So it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So please, Fathers, don't ever give up on your relationship with the child. There is a way. And your presence in that child's life can mean the a world full of difference for their life trajectory and their outcomes and professionals in the business. We know that. Yeah, I think that's, that's one thing that, that I notice, And, and I think there may be some, uh, 
it, it may be some generate a generational thing with attorneys. Um, I would I would say that outside of the 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 guy who's been practicing law for forty years that probably hasn't cracked the family code open in thirty five. Um, <laughs> What happens when attorneys conversate is is a lot of times productive um, in terms of I, I don't know many attorneys who are say are, are going to go in with a straight face and say, hey, there should be zero contact. It happens. It happens far too frequently. But it, it's I hate to say it, but I, I'll say it. some of our peers, I think they'll sell any bill of goods to any human to get them to sign on the dotted line and pay them money. Um and, and so I think the biggest question I always tell people, I tell clients who come through me, they're like, how many cases have you litigated? How many times have you went to trial? And I was like, you know, you should really be looking for someone who is a very, very good negotiator because 90% of these cases are going to end well before a final trial. Absolutely. Um, and we know that statistically is true. Um, and I think having an attorney is where negotiations begin because if if you find yourself as a pro per trying to pick up and negotiate with an attorney, um, that would be the equivalent of a patient who needs a triple bypass trying to call a specialist who works for the person trying to prevent the triple bypass and asking them for medical advice and trying to figure out why their own triple bypass surgery isn't going well. In other words, you need someone who understands the law, who who gives you a buffer because you also don't want to say the wrong things to the wrong person um, because that could get documented and make it its way into court. And you just have to be very, very careful as you navigate. And one of the, you know, fundamental things you do by educating your client on the law, by upholding the law is by teaching them how to honor the law. So sometimes it is about helping them navigate things like talking parents or our family wizard, cueing them into why it is so important to communicate with the other co-parent. And as you know, we've seen it so many times where people just kind of justify trying to isolate the other parent because they have so much hatred and resentment build up. And you know, it's so easy to detect when we're in court uh, from the eyes of the attorney and the judge. And so you never want to go in raw like that, just who you are thinking the truth is going to set you free. Oh, no, you need a representative to protect you, to help teach you what to do, what not to do, and never interrupt your attorney in court. Make sure if your attorney is doing all the speaking for you, you've got a great attorney. You do. I'll, I'll say that. I'll, I'll pull this one up because we got a comment here that that's super relevant to what what you said. And so, um, Shim here, I have been in court by myself, thinking truth and documentation would show what it uh, what has been happening. Um, so, comment in terms of uh, what your your dialogue you just had. Um, if a dad is representing themselves. Uh, what can they do? What what are kind of some of the best tips you can give? And then parlaying that into if you have representation, what this type of information can do. Right. So, you know, if you're representing yourself, um, then what you can do is take a little time in the self-help center talking to the attorneys that are hired by the courts to help you. 
So the question doesn't become what's the truth, right? Because truth actually is very subjective, right? We see the truth through the eyes of the beholder, right? But the reality is that there's only one truth in family court, and that is one person, one judge who knows the law back and forth, right? Who's looking for your half-truths, your mistruths, your hyperboles, your exaggerations, right? Because once you lose credibility, even inadvertently, because you thought you were telling the truth and the mom shows the counterpoints, what you're doing is you're losing credibility, right? And because you're pro-per and representing yourself and thinking the truth shall set you free, you're, you're talking way too much. You're trying to show way too much. And it's probably not in the right words because words matter in court to establish certain like causes of action, certain statutes we're using um, to determine the best interests of the child. So, you know, take a step back, right? And realize if you're doing this yourself, you're in danger, okay? If there's no other capability, and we'll talk about other options because this can't be true, but if there's no other possibility, right, for you to represent yourself, what you need to do is laser focus, meaning you've got to compartmentalize your interests and focus on the best interests of the child, not how you feel, right? But on the through the perspective of how do we ensure that this child has the best life outcome? So, because that's what the judge is focusing on: who has health insurance, who takes the child to school, right? Who's getting therapy when the child shows distress over the prolonged parental conflict? Who's getting the IEPs done and communicating with the teachers? Meaning laser focused on the best interests of the child. And that might mean you do something that's contrary to everything you feel. Because one of the big things that people miss when they're in court representing themselves is that the purpose of telling your story in court is not to punish the other parent. It's not a reward punishment system. A lot of people do a lot of things wrong as a parent and they're forgiven and you see things move right on by. So maybe you have to consider how, what should I do? to change the outcome here. And maybe that involves me getting some parenting classes, me getting some therapy, because I don't like the way this person did me wrong in the relationship. Maybe I need to focus on my own self-help, how to forgive so that I can rebuild proper, civil, respectful, child-focused communication with the other parent. That's the perspective that a judge is having. Who's dysfunctioning? Who's centered on the child? And what's the truth about how this child is feeling and thinking and experiencing life with these two people? Yeah, that's that's a lot of gold right there um, for for the uh, for for all of our viewers there. Um, so now we'll kind of move on. Uh, tomorrow and I, we, we picked out a couple of topics um, that, that we want to discuss. And, and like I said, we're both in California, but this is kind of going to be um, in, in general. And these are some of the, the biggest issues we see men face. So the, the, fir the first question, the first topic we'll move into is domestic violence. 
So I always give the disclaimer that any domestic violence is too much domestic violence and both men and women should not be, whether it be any form of domestic violence, not just the physical, it shouldn't be occurring. Um, But what we find is a lot of times you get in the heat of a divorce or a child custody matter and all of a sudden, despite the fact 11-year relationship with no problems on the outside, one of the parties alleges the other person was seriously physically violent, um, substance abuse. So when a client comes to you and says, and comes in, hey, they have a domestic, they have a temporary restraining order out on them. And they're like, I didn't do any of this. There's no evidence of this. What, what are the steps you take to protect them moving forward in that proceeding? Okay, so first thing about the educational piece with the client, and I want to send out a public service announcement right now. The law has evolved to a point where domestic violence can be repetitive phone calls. Domestic violence can be coercive control. Isolating someone from their own, the family bank accounts, cutting off credit cards so that they can't leave, finding out where they, where the woman's shelter is and showing up. Coercive control, okay? It can be emotional and psychological. A lot of things are happening just in human behavior right now. So, you know, in the last two years in the pandemic, we've seen a deterioration in a lot of relationships, right? Kids aren't going to school. Teachers aren't reporting um, issues of abuse to DCFS. Um, Parents, married parents are fighting, right? Unmarried parents are fighting. People are under an enormous amount of stress because of these large factors in society, right? Losing your job, you know, facing an eviction, um, dealing with sickness, not having health insurance, or maybe dealing with any combination of those factors with health insurance and with a job. But the point is, Mark, we're seeing a breakdown, right, in relationships. And there has been a sharp increase in domestic violence. Ask, ask any 911 operator, right? Um, ask people in the emergency room. You're also seeing murders and ho- homicides go up. So you're seeing that, you know, you know, from the extreme aspects where just people already prone to violence, just, you know, ramping up, but you're also seeing a unique category of conflict. And that is people who would otherwise be getting along, going to school, going to work, coming back home, functioning in their relationships, who are not prone to violence, not violent people, have no propensity, no background for violence, and they're getting accused of domestic violence. And those temporary restraining orders, listen, courts are extremely sensitive to the fact that they're being misused to circumvent a regularly noticed custody action, right? But on the other hand, um, you have to be aware of the kinds of behavior that can trip you up. So one of the first things you have to do when you know, you're, 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 you, as a, you as a person are in the court system is you've got to check yourself before you wreck yourself. And what that might mean is, what am I saying on social media? And how could that be perceived by the other parent? I, I want a whole case just on social media postings. And they were basically veiled threats 
to the other parent, okay? Um, what am I saying in my text messages to this parent? How often am I calling? Now, if you're cursing at a parent, red flag, right? Because now you're in the space of a temporary order could be issued against you. And it sounds bizarre, right? Because people do it all the time. They cuss each other out, right? But in the context of the public policy of these domestic violence statutes, the temporary orders are just to prevent the escalation of violence, to give people a stopping point so that it doesn't end up in someone being violently hurt or, or worse yet, a child getting hurt in conflicts. So we're seeing people who are like, you know, normally peaceful and functioning, catching a case. And that is a real public policy problem, you know, and we're, and we're, we're dealing with it. Like our, 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 our phones are ringing, the courts are flooded, people are starting to get back into court and doing their filings. And, and Mark, you know, one of the first things I screen for is, you know, what are the types of allegations? Because if you're in the land of these people are under extraordinary stress, you know, they just need to break up, have a cooling off period, and then reestablish civil respectful boundaries, then maybe what we should just do is have a temporary order in place, but continue to go into court to modify and increase visitation and physical custody until we achieve parity, right? Yeah. Like it was before we started dealing with COVID and job loss and all these factors. So a lot of times it's just about really advocating for your for your client, like telling the court that, you know, the, the relationship with, with the child is so solid. We should just keep these two apart, but not penalize the parent or worse yet, punish the child and have them suffer the loss of the relationship. But it's very dangerous times, and people have got to be extremely careful what they're saying, what they're posting, what they're doing, and how they're treating the other parent to their child. Because it, you can catch a case right now, as, you know, I don't want to say by looking at the other person the, the wrong way, because that would be overstating the case. But for things that you just would otherwise not be doing, were you not under so much social, emotional, psychological, and economic stress. So th these are things we have to consider as advocates. Yeah. And I, I think that that's a really good point. I had a few weeks ago, Dr. Robert Simon, who is one of the foremost, um, we'll call it foremost experts and, and expert witnesses in the space. And, and he talked about that. He testifies a lot that uh, of, of these domestic incidents. And I'll, I'll touch on that because I have I have my opinion on those as well. Um, but these the, the, he takes a look at it and he looks at it and he'll tell a judge, okay, based on this, this may fit the in, the the definition of domestic violence. I call it like you have the mean text domestic violence restraining orders. Um, reality. I've had yep. guys come to me and it's literally based on some of them aren't even mean text, but they shouldn't have been sending the texts. Sure. Um, and I see a lot of that. Yeah. And he, he explained it. He's like, I, I want to explain to the judge of, OK, this was domestic violence in definition. But the only reason it happened was because this relationship was deteriorating and there's zero risk of domestic violence moving forward. And the public as a gen in general doesn't understand what a domestic violence restraining order is. And it can create this stigma around this person that has very, very detrimental impact on their, their personal and professional lives. So 
I think that's one thing that, that I took from a couple of weeks ago from the interview. It's in terms of educating the judge, um, telling them, hey, I mean, this was something these, this couple obviously doesn't get along. There's a reason why after 10 years of marriage, they're getting a divorce. There's a reason after three years of dating and two kids, they're separating and we're in this spot for child custody. There's no risk moving forward, but there needs to be that cooling off period. Right. And so ideally you want if if you if you did something that, you know, technically trips you up with the court, you know, you might consider doing exactly what you said. So distilled, you take responsibility, you change the narrative, you create a path forward. But it's an extremely useful technique, right, to work with the other side to extend the, the stay away orders, meaning we're not going to talk. But to, but change the custody visitation orders to create a path forward. Because so long as that temporary order expires, you don't have the severe repercussions um, that really work against both parties. So a lot of times a mom will have a restraining order, right? And it, it, it goes into a permanent restraining order and they didn't realize that person could lose their job because that, that other father is a civil servant, right? And now can't pass a DOJ background check. Or that other person is a teacher or a firefighter or a policeman, right? And it it cuts directly in an opposite direction against the need for support. Because if that other person loses their economic viability, you know, gets terminated, worse yet, can't find a job, can't re-enter into their market, guess what that means for child support? Yep. Not going to be as much money to go around for either party. There you go. And that's one of those things that could really threaten the well-being of a child. So be careful the swords you throw. And if one is thrown at you, you have some shields. Um, and, and those are proposals, even if the other side didn't agree, where if you have someone great like Mark who's showing up in the court fighting with you, for you tooth and nail, they're going to tell the court, look, we're going to extend out the stay away order, give them a cooling off period. But what we're not going to do is cut off the, the father from the child because yeah. this child is going to be destroyed from that. And just because they're fighting doesn't mean the child shouldn't have a chance to be a healthy whole, productive human being. And we know statistically that the outcomes of, of children who don't have two invo involved parents, you know, it's something worth looking at and considering from both sides, from the perspective of both mothers and fathers. Because what are you really after? Did you, did you win the battle and then lose the war? Because one of the fact patterns that I think is really interesting is when mothers get early victories while the child is really young and saddled on the, the, you know, the mother's chest and, you know, very codependent on, on the physical needs and, and affection of the mother because they were just born, right? But then long term, right, they're wondering why this child is now a teenager and acting out, can't get control of the child. And they're wondering why they, they're calling this father that they successfully isolated from the child's life, right? And they're not getting much involvement. And, it, and it's the, it, I see a fact pattern where it starts to dawn on the parent, what's happening to my child? Why are they dysfunctioning? And I submit, well, maybe not having a father, psychically, emotionally, Maybe, maybe that's maybe when you see kids having mental health crises, acting up, fighting in school, abusing drugs and alcohol and sex, dropping out, 
you know, maybe there's a connection there, you think? I think we got we got about 20 years of social science now that says uh, that's unequivocally a fact. Boom. So we'll stay on. I, I have a question pop up. Usually we wait until the end, but this one's tied into the DV and what we're talking about. And this is something that I'll stand on the mountaintops. Guys vastly underreport domestic violence. A lot of studies show. Domestic violence is perpetuated by men and women at relatively equal rates. So um, what are my rights? So we'll go in if, if a dad comes into our office and says this. So my wife's emotionally abusing me in front of a minor children stating your dad needs to die. Um, you know, and, let's... And go ahead. Go, go ahead. I'll let you hop in on that. Okay. So let's rephrase the statement that now through the eyes of the child, right? My mom is telling my dad that half of me needs to die. It must be my fault that she hates him. It must be me. She's so tired of taking care of me. She really wants me to die. She really wishes I wasn't here because I am the, the byproduct of these two and their relationship. So here I am. I should die. I should just go away. They would be happier if they didn't see me anymore. And this is why early adolescence is a key point to focus on as a risk factor for high conflict parents because you do see incidents of self-harm. You see suicidal ideation. And no matter how bad you vilify and feel about the other parent, you're actually sentencing your child to what? To what? To the same death that you're wishing on the, the father? And that's one of these like insights you gain from practicing so long and seeing these fact patterns. It's like, this is, it's beyond abuse to the dad. This is child abuse. This is child abuse. And, you know, I've seen, I've seen a lot here, but I just want to be, just be very focused on that dad. As bad as it feels to be told that, you've got a laser focus on how that's affecting the child. Because if you could see the outcome five, seven, ten years later, if that conduct becomes just repetitive and you stay in that environment, the outcomes are just are really are really uh, compelling. And, and Mark touched on it. It's just kids are suffering, you know, and they're and they're resorting to all kinds of things because um, when they have these experiences, it's traumatic. Yeah. It's traumatic. I'm going to touch on something for our viewers. So I've a couple people have said, why is the flag next to my name? Um, different ways you interact with TFRM's page can earn you different badges. Um, so I'm not flagging you saying you can't comment. You're earning those by your interactions, sharing posts, liking posts, commenting on posts, um, being involved in conversations. So flag, not a bad thing. Uh, I don't know what the badge is for that or what you've done to earn that, but that just means you interact with the page. So 
Um, I had I had five or six people in the comments um, asking that question, so thought I'd address it. So we, we've spent quite a bit talking about on the the domestic violence piece, and another another topic that we probably don't talk about enough. And Shem, I think it was earlier, kind of touched on all the documentation that um, he had done, and it, it wasn't effective. So. Only about one in every 10 family law cases statistically ever make it to a final trial. I think that's probably wildly overstated um, to begin with. So um, if you're in a case, um, we, we both have plenty of cases where we know, hey, eventually this one's going to end in a trial. It may be a year from now. It may be two years from now, but we're going to be in court on a trial. What can a dad do? Um, what are the most effective things a dad can do to help his attorney? Because I always tell dads, I could work on your case 40 hours a week for the next eight weeks, and you would still know 20 times the information about your case. So you're in a case, you've probably been involved in it for, let's say, a year, or maybe it's one of them, they come to you and say, hey, I got a trial setting conference next week, I need representation. What can a dad do right now to help prepare his attorney to be most effective at trial? So I think that's a really great question because it goes to the attorney-client relationship, right? Um, and you have to understand that, you know, you don't ask an accountant to do your taxes by sending them a shoebox of receipts. That's a highly ineffective way, right? You don't send 30 emails, <laughs> right, with different little pieces of evidence, right? I think one thing you can do by to successfully work with your attorney to prepare for trial is dedicate one afternoon in the conference room, hopefully in person, right? Spread out all the pieces of the puzzle that you think are important and let your attorney take the top three pieces of evidence for each claim you have, you know, child support, whether it's defense or you're owed it. Custody, separate that, legal custody, top three pieces of evidence. Because you, what you find after doing this so long is that, you know, a lot of things that the client thinks are relevant, like every little data point, every little possible piece of information, don't turn out to be relevant to the legal issues before the court. So just take one afternoon, okay, or a couple of hours with your attorney. Take all these pieces and just say, what are the top three key pieces of evidence that you think are relevant to prove up my right to have joint legal and physical custody or sole legal and physical custody, because that happens too, right? What are the game changers here, right? So what do I need to prove up my claim to establish my bond, to establish my rights here? And then looking at it from the perspective of trial, there's also just a very limited number of ev pieces of evidence that you're going to need to poke holes in the story of the other side. So, so we call it rebuttable, re rebuttal evidence. But really what you're trying to do is attack the credibility of the other side. They're lying because exhibit A, right? Took him to the doctor, took him to school, sign-in sheet, right? They're lying because here's the check I wrote, right? For Pampers, milk, right? Here's my, here's my police report when I went to the police station to pick up my kid and she didn't show up. 
there's there's very limited pieces of evidence that actually become relevant. So I would become laser focused if I were a client and try to understand the trial through the mind of an attorney talking to a judge. So that that goes with acknowledging that not everything I think is important is true. We are constrained through time. Hearings, you get about 15 minutes. That's both sides combined. That's how much the court allocates to your case on a regularly noticed hearing. You can get into longer procedures. But at trial, you're still confined by a slot. And so usually you're talking about three to four hours for both sides to present their cases. Most people can't afford more than that because trial um, because trial is so expensive. So I, I would, if I were the client, identify the three key pieces of evidence through the guidance of my attorney that helped me prove up each and every claim to child support, legal custody, physical custody, and visitation. I would just laser focus on, that means you've got 12 pieces of evidence that you're really going to put forward on your case in chief. And I'd, and I'd start there. Yeah, I think that that's a that's a huge point for me, especially when you bring an attorney in in the middle of a case. Maybe you change, maybe you've been self-represented and you just drop 5000 documents on my desk. Um, number one is it's going to it may it would take me 15 hours to dig through them. And that's not even determining um, that's not even figuring <laughs> out what what actually is useful. So, right. I mean, Allison in the comments here, uh, so, uh, you need to do your own homework. You 100% do. Um, I, I view, if you, if you hire me to represent you, we are a team um, and I can't do it without you. And so you may give me a piece of evidence and I'm sure Tamara, you do, you have this too. Hey, this is, this is the piece. This is what's going to win. <laughs> and I look at the client and I'm like, we're not even going to use it. Right. And they're so right. confused because- the best thing you can do is give your attorney the information. And then it's our job to drive the strategy. Yeah. That that's where a good attorney client relationship is. Like, yeah. So key points uh, Mark, how about use a Dropbox li link and organize your own information into files? How about that? How about take th those 1000 emails and say one Dropbox links right? Five files, each representing my claim, child support, cust legal custody, physical custody, visitation, right? Property rights, whatever the issues are. And then here are my top three pieces of evidence that, that I want to work with you in identifying. And even if you have like, you know, 25, it makes it so much easier for the attorney to look at that information and go, oh, that's it. I'll pick this one. This is really helpful because we don't have infinite number. We, we, nobody has infinite resources. Clients don't have, you know, um, limits to their budget. Courts don't have unlimited times for your hearings and trials. And attorneys don't have unlimited resources to go on an excavation to find one document. So help them by just getting a little bit more sophisticated by using Gmail, you know, a Dropbox link or a G Drive and organize your information intelligently. So that involves you getting proactive in the education process. And then if you can't get the attorney on the phone, call the assistant, say, hey, hey, assistant, Mark's gonna work on my visitation hearing. Um, can, can I send you a Dropbox link? Or do you use Dropbox? Do you use Gmail, G Drive? What do you use? How can I best get this information to you? And that's another way without using attorney time where you can coordinate your efforts with the staff. Yeah. And I will say this too, on the trial piece, 
judges are human too. Um, we, we went to law school with judges. We were in classes yeah. with them. Yeah. They, they, they go to the same restaurants and walk the same streets. Um, if an attorney walks in and says, I'm going to use 500 exhibits, the judge is, is going to be tuned out by the time you get through 10 of them. Right, because you're blowing their calendar. You know, the perspective of, of a judge is, I've got to move this case to disposition. You know, on a domestic violence restraining order, I need, to, I need to make a decision on this case, okay? On a parentage case, I've got to, I need a judgment on whether or not this person is the father, <laughs> the parent, okay? So you've got to get to the point where you realize a decision has to be made, it has to be fast. And you're so right, Mark, and so insightful to focus on the judge, because knowing your judge, doing research on who your judge is, going into court, these are things you can do for yourself right now. Go into court, observe all the COVID protocols, and sit through a whole day and just listen to what the judge is saying to the attorneys, is saying to the, the, the people unrepresented coming in through the courts. And you're going to, that's, I think that's a key piece of education for the client, because they're going to see that Judges make decisions the same way we do. We're intuitive. Yes, there's a lot of law downloaded. We're very intuitive. We're observing your body language. We want to know that you're telling the truth. And really, we just want to know that if we give you custody and visitation with this child, they're going to be strapped in a seatbelt. You're not going to be drinking. Get into a car crash. You're going to get them to school. It'd be great if you did some homework, right? But it's like at the end of the day, we just want to make sure everybody's safe, okay? And they want to make a decision that doesn't backfire on them. So, so get to the point, make it quick, study your judge, you know, and, and laser focus in on the child. Yeah, that, that's a, a big thing, especially. And, and I guess we can kind of turn to this and, and we can talk about a little bit about mediation because it's, it's unique here in California. It's mandatory and county by county is unique. Um, but everything you do in court, whether it be mediation, whether it be a trial, whether it be in these 15 minute hearings, the judge needs to feel as if essentially the start of every sentence that's said by you or your representative is, I believe it's in the best interest of the child that because the minute and judges are good at this, the minute they sense that it is personal. Um, and I, I'm not, I'm not, this is my comment. This is never a guest comment. Men are treated differently in family court than women are, um, in my opinion. My comment, no one else's. Um, and uh, But the minute they feel like it is about child support, it is about being vindictive, um, they're going to they're gonna note that. Um, I, I know that, that a lot of people have beef with judges, and they're generally pretty good about, about catching that type of stuff. Um, they, I, I'll get a lot of clients who the first thing they say is, hey, yeah, I, I want to get more custody to lower child support. All right, well, you, you called the wrong law office to do that. Um, and most likely you're going to go in there and the judge is going to sniff that from a mile away, that it's okay. all about finances. Absolutely. I think, you know, what's so impressive is, you know, when you have a judge who's been on the bench, who, you know, has no problem making a decision, they so appreciate when you come in and you get straight to the point. Um, and you know, the, the judges that um, are in, in California, they're, they're, they're extremely savvy, meaning the fact they're, they're seeing 
So, so we get hundreds of cases a year, right? Judges are seeing potentially thousands of people every year. So it's rapid fire, right? So they're very attuned to um, the relationship between custody and support. Those are the two factors in ch child support, timeshare. So, I mean, the arguments cut both ways, you know, nothing set in stone. You can seek a modification, but what you don't want to do is somehow misplace your lack of understanding about the court process. And you're talking about you know, once a judge and two lawyers are in court, you've got a combined um, experience of education um, and and talent and skill of about 300 years, right? And and somehow, I think a lot of people because they they underestimate uh, judges and even lawyers that they walk away just blaming the judge. Well, you know. Those are easy outs. Stop making excuses. Be proactive and ask, what can I do to change the narrative of the story that's being told on me in court? Because you can put all, you can, you can know absolutely nothing about the law, right? And say, I'm a good dad because, right? My child is so close to me, right? We're close. Here's the time we've spent. Here are the memories I have. Here's the pictures. Please don't rip me away from him. You know, I've seen that be very effective in pro pers, even up against an attorney. Your Honor, I need my son. My son needs me. We're so close. I've done all I can to show you. If you give me custody back, I'm the child's going to be safe, you know? I'm committed. Here's my classes. Here's my, I'm I'm in, I'm actively in therapy. I've, I've taken my anger management courses and I'm working on establishing civility with the other parent. You know, those things are so like intuitive and compelling that you're really going to gain an ally in court. You know, when, when you, when you speak to a judge from the framework of the best interests of the child. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So um, I think we got time. We'll probably take, we'll take two questions here. I'm gonna, I gotta give a couple of people shout outs that are being active in the comments. Um, Alice, it looks like from the comments, you're based in Michigan. Um, John Nichols, so John, Brian, there's a handful. You guys are doing phenomenal work with the legislature up there. Um, I think that in the next couple of years, you guys are gonna be one of the states that's going to get um, 50, uh, presumption of 50-50 custody. So uh, thank you for watching. Thank you for commenting. Um, and I see your comment here. Yeah, the father's rights movement's position is pro-presumption of 50-50 custody, um, just like in Arkansas and Kentucky they have. So that that is a position of the father's rights movement. Let me let me dig through here. I know we had a couple really good questions. Can I just say something, Mark? Go for it. So Every, every state is different. Every, every county within the state is different. Every city within the, the state of, is different. Every attorney working in that city is different. But you know what's not? The child. Children all across America want the same things, right? And judges all across America, America want the same things for that child. And so while I personally um, don't have any ideological um, uh, 
any ideological, like I, I represent both men and women, okay? And people of all different persuasions who identify differently um, in terms of their gender, which, which makes it interesting in terms of the father-mother um, framework. You know, the point is that children, they need to be safe, they need to be provided for, you know, don't make excuses for paying support. You know, don't alienate the father. Don't alienate the mother. Work on your communication skills. That's something I see is true of all parents, both men and women. Most parents need therapy, even if it's just because, listen, it's hard to be a parent and there's no manual. You don't want your manual to be the family code necessarily because you're going to be unhappy. Yeah. Just learn to be a good parent. Join a, join, join a parent group, right? When you take them to soccer, get a couple parents. Hey, let's let, let's meet up for coffee and go from soccer to the park to Disneyland. Show the court that you're infusing this child in the kinds of experiences and people that create for 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 happiness and a, a happy childhood and good memories and good social relationships. You know, re good relationships with their teachers. You know. Be proactive about scheduling medical appointments.